Rural hospitals and healthcare providers have financial challenges, often due to the low volume of patients compared to what facilities in larger communities see, but also due to the higher proportion of their patients who are insured through Medicare and Medicaid. This leads to cash flow challenges, which can inhibit an organization's ability to raise capital for new projects or manage debt on the balance sheet. So, how do rural hospitals respond to their community's health needs when growth is restricted by finances? With proper debt management, smart capital formation, and help from the experts. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 36 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. You know, so today we're talking about capital formation. Uh, debt management and those strategies for local hospitals and healthcare providers. Uh, with all the financial challenges that come with providing healthcare in rural communities in a rural environment, uh, capital and debt management are two that we haven't done a very deep dive into just yet. But that's why we are going where we are today. That's right. And to do that, we are joined by someone with decades of experience as an investment banker and financial advisor who specializes in addressing the capital formation and debt management challenges faced by hospitals and other nonprofit healthcare organizations. And our guest today is a good friend of mine and a great friend to Hillsdale Hospital. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that relationship in just a few minutes. And so it's my pleasure uh, to welcome to the show today Shelly Aronson, president of First River Advisory. A welcome to Rural Health Rising, Shelly. Well, thank you for your kind invitation. It's indeed a privilege to join you tonight. But before we get into it, let me keep my firm's regulators happy. First River Advisory is an independent financial advisory firm that is registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board as a municipal advisor. The information conveyed during this podcast should not be construed as advice within the meaning of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, and any information provided by First River Advisory in any manner is not intended to be advice unless the recipient has engaged First River Advisory to provide advisory services. Perfect. Good. Well, we got that out of the way. That's so, out of the way. Yes. Now awesome. we can get to the real stuff. <laughs> That's just like us when we have to say this is not to be construed as medical advice, right? Right. right. Um, so, Shelley, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and First River Advisory? Sure. Um, I suppose I first became interested in healthcare as a teenager while my father battled and survived cancer. Of course, the logical career path was as a physician. In college, though, I discovered that, like the other men in my family, I wasn't very good at the sciences. Having watched that <laughs> at pre-med, I gravitated to a social science major that I could apply to healthcare. My first position out of school was with the regional health planning agencies. Anyone remember HSAs? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Being the junior guy and the only staffer with any sort of economics background, I was tasked with performing economic analyses. My next career move was to the New York State Public Authority that issues bonds on behalf of hospitals, transitioning from economics to finance. As a liberal arts guy, what do I know about bonds? Nothing, (laughs) aside, aside from that Little Rascals episode in which the old lady gives some bonds to the gang for use as a tail on their kite. To which the old lady <laughs> remarked, the man told me those bonds would go up. But it was a terrific <laughs> learning experience. The, the highlight during my tenure there was meeting Bob Keishan at the groundbreaking ceremony for a hospital project financed by, by my first bond issue. You youngsters probably have no idea who Bob Keishan is, 
But if you're as old as me, you probably probably grew up with Captain Kangaroo every weekday morning. Oh, oh, yes, I've heard that. Yeah. I know that. Yes. I wouldn't have known the name. Yeah. The governor was there, too, but he was definitely playing second fiddle. I'm proud to say <laughs> that I managed to outlast the final of maturity of those bonds, which was in 2013. From there, I was on to the private sector as an investment banker, which elicited guffaws among my college buddies who had graduated from business school. You haven't had a guest like me on this program, so let me contradict anybody's impression that investment banking is a glamorous job. Let me describe my ordeal in traveling to my client to sign the bond purchase contract in connection with my very first start-to-finish deal. You're jammed into the middle seat of a air, crowded airplane. The captain announces that we're 23rd in line for takeoff from LaGuardia. You arrive in Pittsburgh where it's rain buckets, so you get drenched before you can jump into the rental car. By then, it's nearly 10 o'clock at night, well past time for dinner, and the best you can do is the Denny's in New Kensington. <laughs> Over the 10 plus years, I enjoyed many successes, but endured numerous frustrations. One serious issue was the conflict between my hospital clients and firm's investor clients, which I'll address a little more later. It was during that time I began marketing my firm's services to rural hospitals, mainly because the competition was less stiff. Before long, I found that small town people really appreciated my high degree of confidence without the New York attitude. <laughs> Alas, uh, having survived one merger, eight downsizes, and 14 restructurings, my number finally came up, leading to the formation of First River Advisory. As an independent financial advisor, I was now liberated from the investment banking firm conflicts. It became crystal clear that now I was on the hospital side and, be, and could be its advocate without any re interference from my employer's business model. From the beginning in 1995, First River Advisory focused on rural hospitals, again, an underserved market segment. I firmly believe that community hospitals' quality metrics are often better because their staffs are taking care of their friends and neighbors. And many bond investors get that, which is a benefit. I came to appreciate the small town values and my collaborations with hospital executives who weren't full of themselves. I found my efforts can have greater impacts in rural communities as well. I can be more of a difference maker. In return, my clients appreciate my ability to translate complex issues into readily understandable terms that promote prudent decision making. Well, for all of those things that Shelley just shared with us are in fact true, uh, having worked with him now for nearly a decade, and it was in 2012 Duke Anderson uh, came to my office, then CEO of this hospital, and said, J.J., I want to introduce you to one of the brightest minds in healthcare finance. And and that says a great deal coming from Duke Anderson uh, himself to hear those words. And I had the opportunity over the course of my career here as chief operating officer and as chief executive officer now uh, to work with Shelley. And I will tell you, and this is not just banter for this program, he is the brightest mind. Uh, the abilities that he demonstrated in one of the most complex bond refinancing USDA loans has, A, I don't think ever been achieved before, uh, and B, it saved Hillsdale Hospital to a certain degree. And I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes, but um, that's a little bit of an insight into who this man is. Uh, he comes across as down-to-earth, 
uh, he's one of us, and yet he can sit and talk to you, and you just you're mesmerized. And in our in our audience today, will be mesmerized by some of the things that Shelley's going to share. And so I'm excited to have you on the program. Uh, that's about all the paid advertisement I'm going to give you today. Uh, in terms, of we're going to grill you on the rest of this stuff. Uh, but our hope is that as our listeners are out there today, small rural hospital CEOs, COOs, uh, individuals in healthcare who want to learn a little bit more about how they can even save their hospital. Uh, that there's a great opportunity that lies ahead of them. And so, you know, Shelly, we've heard who you are. We've learned, you know, what you've been doing over the course of your career. But something that we do here is we call it Let's Start With The Why. We do it on every podcast, and we get to know our guests just a little bit better. So, Shelly, my question to you is, you know, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? Um, it's, it's funny, a CFO at a client hospital once posed those very same questions uh, many years ago. So let me give you the quick answer. Uh, that's still true. Tell me it can't be done. That'll, that'll get me going. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the formation of First Group Advisory coincided with the emergence of Columbia HCA and its acquisition spree of rural hospitals. So my economics background taught me that healthcare is a locally delivered service. You can't put it on a truck and take it elsewhere, although telehealth is starting to sort of change that. Yeah, a little uh, bit. To align facilities and services with local needs and preferences, it's important to have local control. And the local hospital should not be treated like corporate chattel, like we see all too often. Plus, I'm just not a, big, a, a fan of bigger is better, maybe because I didn't go to B school. Uh, economies of scale only go so far and become diluted by additional layers of management in a large mm-hmm. system. As mm-hmm. your predecessor commented in 1998 during a rating agency site visit, we come in in the morning, look at a few mm-hmm. figures, and take a walk around the hospital. If anything needs to be fixed, we do it then and there. We're not waiting for end-of-the-month reports from far-flung operating units before we take action. That's right. Some hospitals and systems contend they need to grow, usually by merger, to maintain bargaining power against insurers. I contend that this is not going to be a winning strategy. First, this affects only about half the hospital's business. Uh, hospitals are price takers with respect to Medicare and Medicaid. Then the insurers are getting bigger faster than the hospitals can get bigger. Remember those who predicted a dozen hospital systems nationwide? <laughs> if you lump all the Blue Cross plans together because of their complementary geography, we got a dozen insurers nationwide instead. Mm-hmm. I'm also uh, a proponent of nonprofit hospitals. Uh, traditional economics just don't apply for a number of reasons. Those who believe that free market principles represent the solution to, uh, let's just say, underperforming healthcare system, fail to recognize that too much of the, too much of that got us into this mess in the first place. While operating a nonprofit hospital does, does not excuse poor business practices, I think we're all better off. When a nonprofit hospital decides to maintain an unprofitable service in order to address a pressing community need. Absolutely. Maybe I'm a contrarian and I'm usually challenging the conventional wisdom, but as long as hospitals want to remain independent and can hold their own financially, I want to continue to play a meaningful role in the preservation of community hospitals operating under local control, especially in underserved rural areas. This commitment is reinforced every time I send an email in which I use the tagline, contributing to the preservation of independent community hospitals for 26 years, 1995 to 2021. 
Well, folks, that's the end of our episode because that's everything we ever need to hear about the importance of rural health. <laughs> Isn't it amazing, though? Summarized in, in a yes. four-minute response, yep. uh, Shelley hit the nail on the head again mm-hmm. about the importance of our rural community hospitals and keeping them independent. And the work that Shelley does actually preserves those right. small rural hospitals. And we've watched it happen here in Michigan and throughout his client base in the United States. We witnessed firsthand that the strategies that he has put into place help save rural hospitals. Mm-hmm. And we talked yesterday, Shelly and I had the opportunity to speak on the phone and we were just sharing some some of our uh, ideas and, and looking at the landscape of healthcare and just the critical nature and the importance of providing local care to take care of your community. Oftentimes, items that are not addressed when we talk about mergers and acquisitions, it's all about how do we have economies of scale? How do we end up with, you know, we're going to have shared savings. Let's look at a GPO. Aside from those cliches, uh, you end up with how are we going to impact the lives of patients every day? And when we're looking at it from just a profit margin, and we will then take away our mental health services, our obstetrics, and all of a sudden we've gutted health care as we know it in our communities, and patients suffer. So for all those reasons... Shelly, once again, hits a nail on the head. Absolutely. So, Shelly, for someone like me who I'm very interested in finance, but I don't have a lot of firsthand knowledge in this area. So can you break down for us, uh, for example, what are we talking about when we say capital formation? That's one of the things we hear a lot from bigger systems and hospitals when they are approaching a rural hospital and say, oh, well, we can give you access to capital. That's what we can bring to the table. Um, But we don't necessarily need larger hospitals to do that, right? So tell us about capital formation and what does that really mean in the rural health context? Sure. Well, capital formation is the process to provide the means necessary to pay for capital assets, uh, buildings, equipment, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, sorry, not, not, not your operations. Consider the process of determine, determining what capital assets to acquire. The capital budgeting process really is the pre- prequel. When a hospital is determined to proceed with a sizable facilities improvement project, that's when people like me become involved. For the purpose of this discussion, let me limit the universe to nonprofit governmental hospitals, again, with a focus on rural hospitals, whose predominant form of uh, uh, debt instrument used for uh, capital formation is tax-exempt bonds. That's not the only one, but uh, that's uh, a main tool that we use. Because rural hospitals are smaller and their capital needs less, they tend to be more infrequent borrowers. Because their executives don't do this all the time, they would be all the more wise to engage a specialist. For the same reason, they should prefer a financial advisor without products to sell, one who can provide independent, unbiased advice. Banks, investment banking firms, and other financial institutions all have products to sell. They pitch their products that, may, that they may be good at or require less effort or entail less risk for them or which are the most profitable. The product may be good for them, but it may not be suitable for you or meet your preferences. As infrequent borrowers, Rural hospitals won't become regular clients of investment banking firms, so you're not going to fit their business model real well. Banks always talk relationship until you want some credit, at which time the bankers (laughs) seem to become scarce. Um, They like fee income without taking any risk. Uh, Whatever became of that banker who in early 1998 told me, we always renew these letters of credit. Uh, Yeah, until they don't. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's a true story. Rural hospitals are usually, usually concerned about access to capital. If there's one takeaway for our audience today, it's that rural hospitals probably have better access to capital than they think they do. Before the financial crisis, 
The conventional wisdom was that if your credit quality wasn't strong enough to get your bonds insured, then you're a bum and had no access to capital. After most bond insurers went bust, the thinking uh, became if your bonds couldn't get an investment grade rating, you're a bum. But for decades now, with only a few brief exceptions, like at the end of 2008, there have been, there's been an active market for bonds rated below investment grade or having no rating at all. And many banks will extend credit to credit hospitals too. Yeah, you'll pay more, a higher interest rate than stronger credit hospitals, but there's a good chance that there's a market at some price. This is a lesson mm -hmm. from the 1980s. Uh, um, yeah, you can sell anything at a price. Um, but in the currently favorable market conditions that pay more, maybe the difference between an interest rate in the 4% and one in the 3%. So at, at these numbers, it's, uh, it may not be all that materially a difference. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, 30-year bonds sold a couple of weeks ago for a hospital rate in one notch below investment grade uh, were at a yield of 3.21%. All right, so we're still talking about capital. And before we make a switch to debt management, uh, I want to ask you a few questions. Now, this is... You know, this is one question, believe it or not, Shelley, but it's going to have several components to it. So, uh, you know, once a rural hospital decides that raising capital is essential, you know, whether it's to develop facilities or services or even to refinance outstanding debt, how would it go about the process, that hospital specifically? And while the ultimate goal may be obvious, how would hospital leaders, you know, refine the objectives? Then... The last component of this question is what considerations should they apply in choosing from different financing alternatives? Because there's a lot out there, and you've shared that with us over the years. Let me describe in the context of my typical engagement, which will have two phases. First is the planning phase where, after my gaining an understanding of the hospital's plans, constraints, and other factors, I identify all the financing options. Again, I, am not, I don't have products to sell. I can look at any product that anybody has to sell. And that includes uh, it's, uh, not, not just uh, financing, but also paying cash. And in the process, leaving no stone unturned. Uh, selecting the vendors of the financing products will come later. Two issues commonly enter these deliberations, especially among rural hospitals. First, we're real conservative around here. We don't like to borrow money. Boy, if I've heard that one once. Uh, okay. <laughs> You've heard it that. a million times. But, but let me point out that if you pay cash, you will have you, you may very well have stripped the cupboard bare. And what are you earning on that invested cash anyway? And how long did it take you to build up that cash? In the current payment advisor, how long do you think it would take to replenish that cash? A prudent amount mm -hmm. of debt structured in the manner consistent with the hospital's risk tolerance is okay. The next uh, comment I'll often get is we want the lowest cost financing. Well, I can just, I know what that is, but now let me outline the risks that you'll have to accept in order to get it. And here was where we get into the risk reward uh, question. I've often, and, but I've often found the divergence in risk tolerance between mm -hmm. the hired help management and the board members who are fixtures in, in their community and will have to live with the consequences of their decisions for the long run, well after management may have moved on. Uh, maybe not you, Jake. <laughs> long you after. There forever, yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got at least 50 more years, uh, Shelley. I right. mean, board members will really want to try to avoid being challenged by townspeople at the barbershop or beauty salon, at the it's country true. club, or yeah. after church as to what they were that's very by true. agreeing to a deal that subsequently blew up and now jeopardizes the hospital's viability. But serious, right. though, 
seriously, though, here's an example of uh, you get what you pay for. If a hospital yeah. wants to eliminate all risk, uh, the debt will cost more and have a higher interest rate. But the, the lowest cost debt means taking on risk. This cost versus risk decision is generally the most critical a hospital will make. Uh, let me add to that equation that it's somewhat different for critical access hospitals because of Medicare cost reimbursement. Um, one, one client critical access hospital discovered years later, uh, once, once I got, uh, came on the scene, that its payments on its interest rate swap were not costs eligible for reimbursement. And they wound up having to file a bunch of amended cost reports. And uh, I, I seem to recall the payback was uh, several hundred thousand dollars. The, the planning phase culminates in the hospital's adoption of defining the financing plan that focuses on what the hospital wants to do and not on what anyone is willing to sell. The second phase, of course, is the implementation of the financing plan. That's when we solicit proposals from financial institutions to provide the products specified in the plan. Once the pro those product, products have been pre procured and the rest of the financing team assembled, attorneys draft the legal documents and depending on the type of financing, a bunch of other activities will take place to get us to a closing. Now, some refinancings have uh, special considerations. As I explained to the board of a rural hospital a couple of weeks ago, it's not as straightforward as refinancing one's home mortgage loan. In, these, in those cases, reducing monthly payments is usually the sole objective. In this hospital's case, though, I identified six other objectives besides saving money. I identified nine refinancing alternatives, alternatives plus a tenth, do nothing. These refinancing alternatives would have different effects on the seven objectives. It's now up to the board to determine which of the objectives are more important and to what extent they would be willing to sacrifice one to achieve another. Then the board can choose the refinancing alternative which, with, which best achieves the priority objectives. Uh, as an example, one, uh, one of the objectives we identified was the ability to release a certain reserve fund that uh, is required now. Well, if they stuck with, if they stuck with the same lender, uh, they're stuck with that same uh, restricted reserve fund, but uh, other lenders might be willing to uh, uh, liberate some or all of it. And, okay, what are you going to do with the money? Well, they're gonna, they have an underfunded defined benefit pension plan. Uh, that might be a good use of it. Some personal finance principles can be applied to capital financing for hospitals. In the spring of 1998, which was a time of favorable market conditions, and that's when uh, Hillsdale sold uh, the, the bond issue in which I, be, when I first became involved. A new client engaged me to arrange financing for an expansion project. I observed that its financial analyses contemplated applying a few million of its financial reserves toward the project. After some discussion with management, we presented to the finance committee, which was chaired by a guy whose day job was the CEO of Ford Credit, oh. the concept of financing the entire project. Uh, I pointed out that I just bought a car. Uh, a four, in fact, and was offered 1.9% <laughs> financing. The salesman asked me how much I would like, uh, I wanted to borrow and for how long. My response, at that rate, as much as you'll lend me for as long as you'll lend it to me. Uh, <laughs> consider its corollary applicable these days. Uh, debt is on sale, stock up now, within prudent limits, of course. While hospitals can borrow the, uh, cannot borrow the way to prosperity, robust balance sheet management represents good practice. 
And if part of part of the exercise of borrowing debt is to help manage your cash balances. I mean, nobody's uh, uh, suggesting that anyone go hog wild on debt, but uh, if it's a way to preserve the cash you have, and maybe even make a couple of bucks because you can invest the cash at a, at a higher rate than you're paying on the debt, that that can uh, that can work out well. Uh, while we're at it, let me uh, challenge the importance of the uh, rating agencies. Uh, remember what I said about challenging the conventional oh, yeah. wisdom. A business mm -hmm. contact once observed that I spend more time talking with bond analysts than I do with rating agency people. Uh, well, I responded, rating agencies don't have any money to invest. Bond analysts conduct their own credit evaluation anyway, and they already regard the rating agencies as being a day late and a dollar short, as illustrated just recently, uh, uh, really firsthand. And, uh, it's uh, like, this is what I've been telling people all along, and here you go. Uh, these days, bond analysts are actually friendly because their organizations have money to invest in too few opportunities for, for which to choose. Uh, don't let rating agency meetings undo, exert undue influence on your hospital's strategic decisions. I once got testy with a hospital CFO and asked, uh, uh, who's the CFO around here anyway, you or Jane Doe, who is the, the head of the healthcare group at one of the rating agencies? Um, <laughs> yeah, and the fight was on. <laughs> you'll, you'll find a lot of debt capacity models produced by accounting firms or advisory firms that are all tied to rating agency meetings. And uh, if uh, it's all predicated on maintaining your A rating or whatever it is, and so, well, why is that important? Well, um, I don't know. Yeah, that'll cost you more. Right now, it won't cost you much more uh, if you're if you're downgraded. But uh, don't don't let that get in the way of doing what you think needs to be done. You know, Shelley, one of the things that you've taught me uh, in in the course of our our friendship and relationship here is, you know, the importance of uh, debt management and and how we use you know our debt and how we calculate our debt and how that's reported. Uh, obviously, it's debt management is an issue that can inhibit our growth uh, if it's not done properly. And we've watched, you and I both have watched hospitals that have gone so far into debt. Uh, you know, they trip covenants, they can't make their payments, and pretty soon those institutions close, the banks are out money, the community suffers. You know, and I know that that's a long, a long journey. But, you know, what's the process that you go through when working with hospitals, regardless of their size, to manage the debt that they already have to determine if they can take on new debt. Well, the, the, the most important debt management task is the continual reassessment of risk because circumstances change. If a hospital has long-term fixed rate fully amortizing debt, which I like to characterize as set it and forget it, all the risk has been transferred to the bondholders. In this structure, a hospital will not be exposed to risks associated with rising interest rates, balloon payments, renewal of bank credit facilities like term loans or letters of credit or some other guy holding up its end of, the, of a bargain. But many other structures feature one or more of these risks. The first three are pretty obvious, but the fourth can be more obscure. For instance, if the credit quality of the bank which, which issued a letter of credit to back a hospital's variable rate bonds were to deteriorate, the interest rate on those bonds, which is frequently reset weekly, will increase because those bondholders will demand a greater reward for accepting more risk. 
This is a classic case of a bank's problems becoming the hospital's problems, and certainly not what the hospital signed up for. We observed this often during the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, and it applied to bond insurers as well. Interest rate swap counterparties fall into this category too, uh, just like, and just like they perform a credit evaluation on the hospital, hospital executives must, de must determine, not only up front, but continually, that the other guy, in this case the swap counterparty, is good for it. But be careful of mm -hmm. relying too heavily on the rating agencies to insist in those determinations. Uh, Lehman Brothers ratings were still in the A category on the Friday before its bankruptcy filing. Another debt management task is continuing disclosure. I've been a proponent of better continuing disclosure since like forever ago. And over the years, my <laughs> clients have mostly bought into this concept. Besides, it's the right thing to do. When hospital investor financial reserves are in our pension funds, they usually engage professional investment managers. Naturally, hospitals would want those managers to have all the information, information necessary to make prudent decisions on their behalf. Benefits for hospitals include, if you have a favorable rep, reputation for better disclosure on an outstanding bond issue, or your financial advisor has a favorable reputation, your next bond issue is likely to sell at a lower interest rate. If you run into, into some financial difficulty and, and have some splaining to do, bondholders will be more understanding. If you trip a covenant and need a waiver from bondholders, they'll be less ordinary. Uh, if the first statement from bondholders at the start of negotiations is something like, your disclosure stinks, well, that's strike one. Uh, you're just getting off on a bad foot. <laughs> and we, we've been through that yeah. at Hillsdale. Uh, yes, yes, uh, we have. Uh, over the years with uh, financial difficulties and uh, covenant issues. Yes. And uh, um, we, one bondholder gave us a little bit of uh, uh, some heartburn, but uh, we figured out uh, how to get rid of them. Uh, <laughs> sure did. So, sure did. Uh, uh, that, that worked out fine, but it, it's important for financial executives to uh, uh, remember that, uh, yeah, when they move to the next position, that favorable reputation travels with them. Bond investors have long memories, and they'll, they'll remember the, the good things, just like their uh, summer still sore at the state of Mississippi for repudiating those railroad bonds in 1868. So speaking of uh, debt, what about managing debt after a leadership transition? I would imagine there are plenty of cases, and you probably have lots of stories uh -huh. that you may or may not want to share, where a new CEO comes into a hospital and inherits debt from their predecessors, but maybe this new leader wants to take a different approach to managing the debt and eventually getting it off the books. Yeah. Uh, th the first task is ensuring that new executives understand it, especially its, its risks. And risk is a dimension that's uh, unfortunately uh, overlooked uh, many times. And sometimes high risk demands immediate attention. When I have a longstanding relationship and I've been involved in a hospital's capital formation activities all along, I typically become the institutional memory with respect to debt. I mean, Rachel, we had that conversation mm -hmm. the other day about uh, you know, we did. where this headwaters come from anyway. A service that I routinely include in my continuing the ser services engagement is the or orientation of new executives and financial staff. Uh, the standard I always try to apply is to have a better answer than it seemed like a good idea at the time as to why certain decisions were made. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. When I've not been involved, I need to learn up in a hurry. This occurred about 10 years ago when a critical access hospital CEO, after about six weeks on the job, received a letter from the bank 
which had issued a letter of credit which backed the hospital's bonds. The bank informed the CEO that it did not plan to renew the LOC, so the hospital should make plans to refinance the upcoming $13 million balloon payment. And you have a month to do it. And by the way, you'll need to terminate the associated interest rate swap, which at the time was about a million and a half dollars underwater. Hmm. Fortunately, he contacted the CFO at his referral hospital, which was a client of mine at the time, uh, and put them in touch with me. After one year and then four-year interim solutions, we were finally able to craft a permanent solution, which worked out well. It's the same solution we put in place for Hillsdale uh, a few years ago. So they certainly take on uh, a life of their own at times, Shelley. And I know that, uh, you know, people want these, uh, executives want these, uh, you know, type of uh, engagements to be done within months. Uh, Many times, you know, you're spending years with organizations. And I know we worked through uh, almost two years as you remember the days of not getting the USDA loan and you and me and a group of us got the congressman and the senator in the room. And, you know, we've we've been down that road. And so, you know, I think one of if you could give some advice uh, to an incoming CEO who's listening to this program, you know, about patience, you know, you've seen it all. And, And this type of financing does not get resolved overnight. Now, um. Start early, leave yourself enough time. When existing clients are involved, it, it's I'm, I'm already there. I'm already at the table. So I already know what they're doing. Right. If they have capital plans, it's like, okay, how, what do you, how do you plan to pay for this? And, uh, and then, we, then we can start working on it. Uh, I, I've warned clients it's, you know, who are uh, with a, like an expansion project. It's like, uh, you don't want to dig the hole before you have the financing in place. Uh, <laughs> Very true. Uh, the investors will, will now know you're desperate and you need to get this done. Right. Um, exactly. It, it's it's like uh, going to, I hope there aren't any car salesmen in the audience, but uh, it's like don't buy a car. <laughs> like, uh, don't fall in love with it. Uh, don't be afraid to walk out the door if you have to and leave yourself enough time because it's uh, it, it's going to be an excruciating process where they'll make you an offer and you'll think about it and you'll tell them to do better and they'll go in the back room. You know, you know, they'll, they'll say, that, well, they'll say they got to talk to the sales manager. They're really having, <laughs> having a cup of coffee. Uh, you know, they'll come right. back after a time and uh, yeah, this will just take all afternoon to, uh, uh, to, to get the deal you want. Um, and, but here it's not an afternoon, it's, it's several months process. Uh, yeah, I, I think to, to, from start to finish, to do a, uh, a financing correct, I'd say uh, four months is the minimum, uh, Absolutely. six is better. And yeah. I mean, it's, I, I've been, uh, I've had engagements where it was years before we actually got a financing accomplished. It sure was. And, yeah. uh, and Hillsdale, and Hillsdale being close to that. And especially for uh, uh, rural hospitals, which don't do this all the time just because they're small, um, it takes a lot of there's, there's an educational component first from management, then the board uh, to kind of outline the steps and hear the concepts and, and all that. And very often, presentations are twofold uh, to the board. Uh, the first one, this is, is just for, uh, to uh, learn them up, uh, no decision making. We want to get this all out on the table. Then we'll come back, and then we'll we'll tell them at the end of that, the first session. Here's here are the decisions we're going to need from you the next time around in a month. Uh, think about it. We'll have, um, management will ask for additional uh, analyses and other material, 
and we can reconvene. If you think we need to uh, have another educational session before you make a decision, fine, let's do that. As an independent advisor, I really, I really don't care what the decision is because my client has to live with it. Um, I'll do whatever they want. I'd like to see them make a prudent decision. There have been times where I've disagreed, uh, but uh, okay, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Well, you've been a tremendous advisor to me, to Hillsville Hospital. And Shelly, something else is happening in your world. Uh, you are now involved in some discussions about mergers and acquisitions and actually doing some consulting and working with companies. Um, is that correct? Yeah, although in a, di- in a different sense, I'm, uh, cur- I currently have an engagement uh, where the um, a, a sale of a hospital has already been uh, agreed to, and my role is to wrap up the uh, the debt and uh, right. I manage the closing flow of funds. So it's a very tangential role. A lot of uh, M and A companies are certainly out there. Yeah. Uh, they're they're making profits from selling hospitals. Your your take's a little bit different. Obviously, you come in after the decision's been made, and you help them wrap up some of those finances. So, when talking to hospitals about mergers and acquisitions, you know what are the factors you encourage them to consider in this decision making process? Well, I'm like the anti merger guy. I mean, for the reasons I explained earlier, I'm a I like to see uh, uh, independent hospitals remain independent. Awesome. Here, here. Yeah. That's what yes. we like, Rachel. Amen. Uh, I, I'm on your side. And, uh, when, yes, you are. When the M&A guys come around, they contend that a hospital needs to merge be, uh, due to lack of access to capital. It said, uh, boy, uh, give me a crack at them first. And uh, uh, I, 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 yeah, there's an M&A firm with which I'm friendly. We've met. And I say, you know, we work, we're working across purposes. You're telling them that they need to merge. And I'm telling them that they don't, you know, for, the, for this reason, I'm telling them they don't have to. Uh, right. They like me anyway, so that's all right. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but th- these guys get paid when mergers are consummated, so hospital executives just cannot expect an unbiased opinion. If you, know, if you think you have to uh, obtain independent viewpoints and opinions um, uh, and don't, rather than relying on the promoters, um, I mean, I can address access to capital questions, but other consultants are better suited to address operational and strategic issues, and to provide valuations. But again, uh, engage them on an independent basis. He will pay you a fee for your independent advice, you know, not some contingency based on uh, an eventual transaction. So for my fellow CEOs out there listening today to this program, uh, and you're considering discussions about mergers and acquisitions because you feel you don't have access to capital, you feel that you have some uh, bonds that are coming due, I want to encourage you uh, and we often, rarely, do we ever promote uh, a company or a person. But I'm going to tell you, uh, I feel compelled to promote my good friend Shelley, uh, who has a wealth of knowledge regarding this. And I think for all the reasons that Shelley talked about today, Rachel, the importance of sustaining your local healthcare and your communities, better access to healthcare. You know, you have local control of that healthcare, and and for all of those reasons, you know, for the better of the patient that better health outcomes is all of the reasons that we would sustain a local hospital in an economies like today. And so right. as the CEOs are listening, thinking, I don't know how we're going to do this, new challenges, COVID brought us this. There are options out there. You do not have to resort 
sword to the M&A, the guy right. that calls you and says, we can make this happen. And uh, to Shelly's point, yeah, there's a fee that they get, a right. significant when fee. When the sale happens, for closing not the sale. if you find right. another way to survive without it. I have never known a merger in an acquisition leader, uh, organization or company to come in and say, you know what? I don't think it's a good idea that you do this. It's mm-hmm. just the opposite of that. So if you're looking for some assistance in the areas of debt management, if you're looking at some kind of refinancing, you're looking for a conversation uh, alternative to the standard you just have to merge and be acquired, contact Shelly Aronson. Uh, and we will make sure that his information is provided on our podcast today. Uh, if you want to reach out to him, I would encourage you to. He's done wonderful things for Hillsdale Hospital and for our community to keep our local hospital sustained here for hopefully another 106 years. Mm-hmm. And so with that, Shelley, once again, we want to thank you for joining us today. You've been so enlightening, and I could listen to you you know, for hours, probably days. Uh, you're fascinating. You bring a new perspective uh, in, in ways to get, get the job done as it looks at refinancing. to to keep our local hospitals operational. So thanks so much uh, for being part of our show today. And now for our favorite part of the show, the voice of the patient. Born and raised in the town of Hillsdale, Stacy was close to the family of a local OBGYN. She has many childhood memories with them. The birthday parties, the times where his daughters would braid her hair, playing together outside. Even as an adult, that family was still an important part of her life. Being one of the few OBGYNs in the area, the man she knew so well as a child helped deliver her firstborn child, which didn't go as planned. She expected a natural birth, not a C-section. She said, sometimes things don't go as planned, right? He was just amazing. He made me feel comfortable in a very scary situation. And to him, you're not just another patient. You're the most important patient. And when she was pregnant with her second child, her husband and their firstborn, now 18 months old, went in with her for a checkup. This doctor's office had a giant fish tank and her newly walking toddler ran over to see the fish. He hit his little head hard on the corner of the glass fish tank. Naturally, her and her husband went running toward him just about as quickly, so did the doctor. He scooped up my son up into his giant arms and applied pressure to the already forming goose egg until it was gone, she said. He stopped his day until he was sure that my son was okay. His compassion is remarkable. I feel honored to know the family like I do. What a great story to hear and to remind us everything we do is for our patients. At the end of the day, that's why we put the patient voice into our podcast. This is what it's all about. You know, and before we close, Shelley, we'd like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. Uh, and we want to know what is your most unique rule experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? Well, it, it's really a collection of experiences and, and memories. Uh, traveling to rural hospitals over the years has necessitated plying the blue highways, as William Lee C. Moon described them. You get to experience this great country from a perspective you wouldn't get from airplanes or interstate highways or if you're limited to urban areas. Let me point out a few. Um, no particular order, but uh, just l- looking at the ice formations in Epifet Bay in uh, northern Lake Michigan, 
uh, crossing the mighty Mississippi River several times, driving over Clark Summit in northern Pennsylvania, and having the entire Wyoming Valley open up right in front of you. A house in Iowa that served as the model for American Gothic. Stuck following coal trucks along the back roads in western Pennsylvania. <laughs> On the back roads between Leesburg and St. Augustine, Florida, which always seemed to me to be the set for the Porky's movies. <laughs> uh, 44 below and 30 below was zero in Clearfield, Pennsylvania and Iron River, Michigan, respectively. Uh, the surf ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa. Staying at the dairy farm B&B in Newark, New York. Uh, though I declined the invitation to arise at 4.30 to help milk the cows. <laughs> Wise move. Uh, Gustav's Things uh, Smoked Fish Store along US-2 in the UP. Uh, and tagging along with the rural hospital CFO to his Rotary Club meeting, where the invocation included the prayer for rain for the farmers. Always remember that. Very true. Always remember. Isn't that wow. incredible? What some great experiences that you've had, Shelley, and, and uh, we're just so thankful to have you as part of our Hillsdale Hospital Advisory Committee. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with a great guest, so be sure to tune in. As a reminder, we are collecting patient testimonials to be featured during our Voice of the Patient segment. If you have an experience to share about the positive impact you or your loved one has had as a patient at a rural hospital or healthcare provider, call our direct-to-voicemail line at 269-447-1265 or email marketing at hillsdalehospital.com and share your story with us. You just might be featured on a future episode. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen to too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. You can also find us now on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Shelly Aronson, president of First River Advisory. For more interviews like this and more information or to share your patient or family testimonial with us, visit ruralhealthrising.com.